Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dan Shepard. I'm joined by Minica Mouse. <laughs> Hello there. Hi. You know, Monty has really taken over. I've noticed lately, everyone really is settled into Monty. Our pod calls me Monty. Yeah, I like it. Do you like it? I like, like it. it. No, yeah. I like it, but it's brand new. No one has ever called me that. Not in college? No, they all call me Mon. Mon. Yeah. yeah. That's always been my nickname. Oh, I like Mon. That's the go-to. Mon. Like Callie would never call, you call me Monica. No. Nor Monica. definitely not call me Monty. Oh, but it's nice because it's like a baby name. So I actually think that's why it happened because Kristen started it. Okay. And I'm her baby. She's your mom. Yes. And so. And she's your wife. She, yes. But, and your daughter. But one of the people I am is her baby. So she kind of gave me a, a baby name. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it's cute. It's very cute. It's very it is, endearing. It's, it's a sweet name. It's when I sweet. when I hear people call you it around the house, I like it a lot. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it feels like I'm really loved. Yes, yes, it's a good one. And it, it has taken over. You're right. Well, speaking of people with fun nicknames, Marky Mark Ronson. <laughs> I wonder if people called him Marky. Probably when you're a Mark growing up, people call you Marky. Do they? Yeah, Marky. Okay. I think we'll have to interview him again and ask him if they called him Marky. <laughs> Mark Ronson is a seven-time Grammy Award-winning, Oscar Award-winning mm. record producer and DJ. He's collaborated with Amy Winehouse, Adele, Lady Gaga, Lily Allen, Miley Cyrus, Queens of the Stone Age, and Bruno Mars. Jeez. It's incredible resume. It, so fun to talk to. Really great conversation. And he has a new podcast that is out now called The Fader Uncovered, a series of in-depth conversations with the world's most impactful musicians, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde pioneers. Each episode is rooted in these musical, iconic Fader cover stories. So Fader is a magazine. Yep. And it's a really cool podcast. I listen to it. So everyone should check out The Fader Uncovered. Please enjoy Mark Ronson. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Intuit, the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you yeah, on. Yeah, they don't teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy-to-use resources, like getting a car loan with Credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education. He's an object. He's an object. 
This is not an interview. Hey, are we wearing matching headphones? I believe so. I imagine because we're audiophiles. That makes me feel good that we have the same headphones as him. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not really a feather in your cap, but it's a huge feather in our cap. It's a feather for the Sennheiser organization, I think, is what's going on. (laughs) I listened to the uh, Russell Brand one, and it was so great. Like you said, he's just so smart. And there were times when I was like, is the podcast playing back fast? Or is this just how he <laughs> talks? Cause, or is he, is he reading this? But anyway, there was at certain points where I was like, but I would do anything to like literally send an audio engineer to give Russell Brand a microphone in his house. This is a dude who like makes audible books. He makes yeah. his living off his voice and his thoughts, things he writes. I know there's a studio somewhere in the back of that crib. But yet, but yes. yet we are all being, you know, privy to this genius freaking, you know, back and forth between the, the three of you. But his voice has to sound like it's coming out of a clock radio MP3 player. Well, it's not unlike like listening to a, a phonograph album from 1918. You're like, I wonder what this person would sound like with some good recording. And it is true that that is a testament to like he's just so brilliant that it, it doesn't really matter. You know, because I am an audio engineer, part of my job is putting mics in front of things, in front of drum kits, in front of singers. So, like, I was listening to I was like, I would love the full range of the expression of the timbre of his voice. That must ruin a lot of shit for you. We talk all the time about, like, knowing too much about how movies are made and TV shows. So it's almost impossible for my wife and Monica and I to watch a program because we're like... Oh, clearly they had rain that day. They called it. They flipped this screen. You know, just all the shit you're aware of while you're watching or listening. I know. This sounds like I'm being like coy or trying to be funny, but I can't listen to music during sex. I don't know if that's like a real like myth anyway. Barry White and Marvin Gaye and Baby making music. But for me, it would literally just be like, oh, that snare drum. Oh, I bet that's like a, you know, a Slingerland piccolo and the mic is slightly angled off access. Like I just can't listen to music and i love music and i could really enjoy it at home but i think that anything where also the rhythm then your body would be co-opted by the rhythm of the music sure Mm. can i make a suggestion yeah if you were ever to make love to someone who you were nervous was just too attractive and you were you would not be able to Mm, maintain your composure aka um, maybe pop on some music because you'd be so distracted by that that you could probably stay in the saddle for a long time. Yeah. I mean, we're old as fuck, right? We're both 1975? Yes, both 75. Oh, wow. Same yeah. age. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting that. I'm his elder. Oh, you thought he was way younger than yeah, me. Yeah, What a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask, really. <laughs> Look at that youthful skin. How old are yeah. you? You're nowhere near our age, right? 30. Okay. About to be 34. I'm not that far off. 13 years. 12 years. 12, nice 12. Well, to Mark, because he's a September birthday. Oh. So he's not quite 46 yet. What is your birthday? January 2nd. Okay, so you just turned. So you're like nine months younger. You know what? I have two really, really close friends that are January 5th, and I have two other best friends that are October 9th. I know one of the January 5th. Oh, you do? Bradley. Yeah. Yeah, Bradley Cooper. So we're best buddies. We were born three days apart. We both got sober a month apart some 16 years ago. We were both born deaf. What? He was too? Yes. Whoa, weird. We might be the same person. He the really talented version and me the street fighter version. (laughs) I noticed that you said that on the Russell Brand one. And are you into 
birth years, birth signs, that kind of stuff? Or is it only if just someone's 75? I'm into the panic of getting older and seeing my heroes not walking as briskly as they did. I'm just more probably obsessed with how long the ride is, more than like astrological signs or anything. How are you feeling emotionally about being, at best case, midway through? Uh, no, whenever anyone <laughs> teases me about like something that might be attributed to a midlife crisis, I'm like, I'm way past mid. Thank you for saying that, but I'm way past <laughs> midlife. Yes, yes. I wonder if you were ever good friends with DJ AM in Los Angeles. You were. I was. Yeah. With I figured Adam, you yeah. might have been an Adam was so incredibly talented, this DJ, before he would have been the guy making $30 million a year in Vegas because he had the wild combination of incredible command of the crowd and uh, technical skills were unparalleled. And I remember he was like a year older than me. We were about the same level of technical talent until he just exploded one year because I think he just spent the entire year at home practicing. And I remember in my head, it was such a dumb thing to say, but I was like, well, I always have a year to catch up. And then as that lag became greater and greater, it, it would be silly. It would be like being like, you know, like say if I was a year younger than LeBron James and just started playing basketball, I'd be like, I always have a year to catch him. Like, it's not. <laughs> yeah. But that would be my thing. And so I, I understand what you mean. I think because I'm probably in the most stable, happy, comfortable part of my life that I've ever been in, I've let go of some of that I have this long to achieve this thing or that sort of thing so I feel pretty good where I am yeah. for the first time probably ever and that might not have anything to do with my age like I'm sure probably financially you're more stable than you ever were I am there, there's like a lot of things I think that culminate you do get older and you stop obsessing to the degree you did I think and then you do acquire some quote safety financially maybe career-wise do you do this thing? So as an actor, you know, you're always playing this game of, I don't know, uh, how old was De Niro when he did blank? How old was so-and-so? And then you're holding on to these people that became stars really late in life. And then at my age, you recognize like, no one was discovered at 47. Like, so whatever, <laughs> whatever the height of my acting uh, mountain, it's behind right. me now. But you're in one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, I'll like, give you three guesses to what that might be, actually. Because you've been in a lot of movies. Idiocracy. No. Oh, fuck. I forgot you were in that. It's a fucking amazing movie. Yes. You're in some kind of books for that one. You are. That's, <laughs> that, and that has obviously become more and more prescient and probably harder to watch as we've gotten closer to it. But, um, what? okay, uh, other two, what would you oh, guess? Oh, wow. I'm, and it's a, it's a, it's a movie, okay, not I'll a TV just, show. Baby Mama. Oh, baby mama is one of my, f I don't know what it is. And I know I'm not the ex exact <laughs> demographic for that film, but maybe because I've just wanted to have kids and uh, maybe, you know, I'm the first point in my life where that actually feels like a reality on the horizon, which is wonderful. But I've always felt like Tina Fey and that date in the opening scene when she's just like, that was the last 10 years of dating for me. And it's just a brilliant when Amy Poehler says, they get in that fight, and she's like, I'm sorry I was mean to you, and Amy Poehler goes, and I'm sorry I farted in your purse. That is one of the <laughs> all-time. <laughs> and you're great in it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you like that one. You know, as you were making me guess, I was kind of like, is he a drama guy or is he a comedy guy? Yeah, I probably wouldn't have got there for a while. This interview has taken the exact turn I want at all times, which is celebrate my acting career. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> 
what I am curious about so many things. I got to say, I knew of you, of course, as a producer and a songwriter, but I didn't know anything about your story. And it's a pretty intriguing story in, in a lot of ways. First and foremost, born in, in London town. Mm-hmm. No one says that, do they? London town? I say it sometimes, and it's cute. Yeah, and there's a great R&B disco song from the late 70s called London Town. There weren't a lot of big English R&B hits because all that music came from America, but there's a great song called London Town. And so you moved to New York City at eight years old, but I'm interested in your family a little bit. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. It's not just a perverse interest in money, which I do have for sure, but I'm really impressed when people like of means succeed because I think so many people have a hard time finding a drive when they grow up with all the things they would want. I don't even know what they're aspiring to have. Like Nick Kroll is one of my favorites in that respect. Had the gumption and the drive, but probably didn't need to have any of that. Or Julia Louise Dreyfus, another person like. So anyways, I'm really interested in that. Is any of it true what I read? Was your family really wealthy? No, that, well, that's the thing. I think, is that, no, not to diss your uh, research methods, but is that Wikipedia, maybe? You know, I use a very exclusive site that people don't have access to. Um, is, is that on, it's probably on Wikipedia as well. It, it might also be on Wikipedia. In Wikipedia, it says something about my family, my father being a real estate magnate, which is like, okay, I definitely came from... A successful family. My grandfather was East London, kind of like tough Jew. Like it was probably his dad was either a butcher or a milkman. They were like old school gangster East London Jews from Brick Lane. So my grandfather started this company that then became like owning gas stations or petrol stations, they call it around the country. And so by the time I grew up, you know, I came from like a nice upper middle class North London Jewish upbringing for sure. My dad's brother is like this crazy real estate tycoon magnet who's like built this crazy thing, went down with some scandal in the 80s, this business scandal, went to jail, lost everything, built it all back up again. He's like next level. That's the headline I read, that he had accumulated this enormous real estate fortune and lost a billion dollars in the 90s during some real estate collapse. And I didn't even read the jailing part. That's exciting. So my dad was always more into music, managed bands. And I mean, he would even say in his youth, a little bit of the party guy, black sheep of the family in that way, because they just didn't get music and what he was doing. And then my stepdad is a very successful musician. He started the band Foreigner and wrote all these incredible songs like I Want to Know What Love Is. So to drum your point home, yes, I wouldn't have wanted for anything as a kid. We certainly weren't like the Trumps or Jaggers, but like totally you are correct. Right. And so what I like about that is I pursued this, A, I wanted to be famous, B, I liked being funny, C, I wanted money. But for you or like Nick, you had an insane fascination with music, yes. right? I have to imagine, because what I know about you is that you somehow got yourself an internship at Rolling Stone at 12 years old. Is that apocryphal? No, or? that is real. I was extremely obsessed with music and the minutia of it, you know, not just like the sounds and being in love with the songs and loving Duran Duran, but also reading trades at like eight, because my stepdad, he didn't even read the trades, but he would get Billboard because he's a successful rock star. Like, what do you do? You see how your album's doing that week and then you throw it in the trash i'm reading like you know <laughs> yeah. behind the scenes i don't know why i found it interesting because i had nobody else to talk to about it in school like it was just something that i wanted to digest because it was something that was in the makeup of the thing that i really love music so let me learn everything about it and i found it interesting yeah to me it, it sounded almost like there was some 
comfort in the minutiae, the shit that would have bored most yeah. people, you somehow saw an order to or were searching for an order to or somehow felt comforted I think by. So. I think I just loved music so much. It's like, I want to know everything about it. Maybe it's also because... I was never prodigiously talented at like one instrument, right? Like I was always kind of okay at a bunch of things. I was like the worst guitar player in my high school band. I would have other friends that would go off and come back in the summer and they could just like shred Van Halen and Living Color riffs. And I couldn't. So I probably somewhere in the back of my mind just was like, all right, well, let me just learn everything because at least then I'll have this toolkit which is essentially what kind of being a record producer is, this toolkit of like knowledge of the history of music, of arranging. You can play a little bit of everything, but maybe because I wasn't incredible at one thing, I was like, well, let me just learn everything pretty good. I can so relate to that. Yeah, like yeah. thinking you're not going to be a musician per se, but you know you must be involved in this industry somehow. So I'm going to explore every possible That's why I interned route. at Rolling Stone because I was like, maybe I want to be a journalist. That's why, you know, I nearly went to Northwestern because I had a good journalism school. I wrote for hip-hop zines and then I started DJing. Just like anything that can put me in this world, I'm going to just figure it out till I find the thing that feels like I belong here, right? Or that I slot in here. Do you think part of it also, perhaps, and you can say no, but I think... When we interview people and when I know people who get like really, really, really obsessed with a subject, even me with like friends, I was obsessed with friends and I knew every single thing about it. It was a fantasy. It was a way for me to escape my life and go into this other world. And the more tiny details I absorbed, the more that fantasy became, quote, real to me. Well, I definitely see parallels in that I mean, because basically there's a lot of things that you can do in music. You can be like a front man. You can be a guitar. Like there's all these different personalities or you could be a rapper. I found the one thing that guaranteed I was going to spend the most amount of time by myself in a tiny room possible. Right. Like being a, mm -hmm. being a record producer. <laughs> I did grow up in a like a turbulent household. There was a lot of fights and substance and things going on and i think that the idea of retreating to the room nobody can fucking get to me here and i'm going to be the captain of my own ship was probably a very appealing thing i think control i have yeah. full control yeah. and nobody can hurt me here is probably a lot of what got me into those things and and then the genuine love for friends i know as music <laughs> <laughs> I would be so disappointed if you grew up in a rock star household and those things didn't exist. I'd feel like you got screwed out of the yeah. experience. Okay, so you, when you start DJing, again, talk about a thing to control. Like you, you're in charge of exactly how this will sound. How when you want to start something, when you want to fade something, when all those little components must have been intoxicated. It was. I was playing in high school bands, uh, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, and then I got super into hip-hop, and it was like the early 90s in New York, and there was Nas, Wu-Tang, all these things coming. New York was so exciting, and I was like, I'm definitely not a rapper. I don't know how to produce yet, so DJing is this thing that I can do that fits me into this world that I love. So I got turntables. I started to learn by just listening to Funkmaster Flex and Stretch Armstrong on the radio and emulating their routines, just getting it wrong till you figure it out. Like, 
learning a Beatles song on guitar. And so I think that there's two kinds of DJs, really. There's somebody that like goes in the room and they can probably really break down to psychological archetypes. Somebody who like goes in and just wants to turn the room out and just give people the best time, which has some different traits in it. You could call that people pleasing. You could call that being intoxicated off the energy, kind of like ego. So you want everybody to look at you because they're having the best time. And then there's somebody who might just go in and be like, fuck it. I'm just going to play whatever the fuck I want, which is like a DJ shadow type or somebody like probably not a club DJ, not like what me or AM would consider ourselves. It wasn't just the control of going in and being able to like dictate the mood of the room. There was a bit of this like people pleasery thing and they're like, I'm going to like give everybody the best time. And I mean, that's what being a DJ sort of is, you could argue anyway. So maybe I'm getting a little Deep yeah, on it. you're a party pumper. Exactly. There is a component of control in there in the same way that there is in comedy, which is like, if I meet strangers, I have anxiety. Like, how is this interaction going to go? But I have this secret weapon that I can make jokes, and then I'm totally in control of how it goes. Like, I make jokes, they laugh. You put this song yeah. on, they dance. You put this other one on, they go yeah. even crazier. It does put you in control yeah. of the interaction. I only remember this really recently, but I, I remember it when my mom remarried, got married to my stepdad, I was nine years old. And I remember everybody was out in the garden on the lawn, like kind of partying. And I saw the music was coming from this little tape deck. I guess there were like these old school DJ rigs from the 80s with like a double cassette deck. Uh, this was like a budget mm. version of having two turntables. And I remember that if I could like line up the two songs and get it cued so that there was a little space between the first song and the next song playing, it was a lot of fun. And I, and I got off on this thing that like, whoa, and everybody out there is listening to what I'm playing in here. So, I mean, mm. I mean, there's no layered yeah. subtext. I mean, that is literally DJing. Like, I never realized till recently remembering that anecdote. There's an element, too, to what you've done. There's almost like a computer programmer sensibility to it, right? And as far as in like the tediousness of the minute controls in the amount of like singular focus. As you say, you were kind of by yourself in the room doing this. Yes, especially in modern times, the way we make music, we're working with software. So there is this idea of being in front of a computer, but there's also... Without the kind of divine inspiration, Quincy Jones has that quote, and you always got to leave a little space to let God in the room or whatever you believe that thing is. There's divine inspiration. I mean, of course, I wish, I know it's not a practicality, but uh, I was Stevie Wonder or John Lennon, and I'm just going to sit at the piano and like this fucking lightning bolt's going to come through me and a song's going to come out. But that's not really my talent. I mean, I have some of that and I can write music and get the song going and come up with some chords and melodies that will inspire someone. But the other part is that I am good at the more minutia part and being a producer is such a vague title because everybody has their little magic toolbox, but it's being this fucking superintendent's headmaster school sometimes. Sometimes it's just like being a cheerleader. Sometimes it's knowing when to get out of the way. And sometimes it's being like, hey, why don't we go here with this chord? My friend Richard Russell, who started XL Recordings, that has like the White Stripes and Adele and like this great label, he says something in his book where he says, um, being a record producer is really just the series of making the right decisions at the right time. It's nothing but that, really. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you later, but I'm going to ask you now because it's kind of, I thought of my own way to explain it because I imagine some people have no clue what a producer does. And as well, in movies, there's like 80 different versions of what a producer does. 
But I was watching the Billie Eilish documentary. I have to assume you I haven't you seen see it yet. I heard it's really good. It's, it's great. It's so good. And her brother, as I watched him, those two work together, I thought, oh, this guy's an archaeologist, right? He's like dusting away these obstacles so that the artifact can be yeah. revealed. That's a great way to put it. And he was so beautiful at recognizing what the roadblocks were, encouraging this avenue. Like it, it was therapy at times in the kindness and the patience and everything. I just thought, well, that's a, what a fucking asset yeah. that is. Yeah. I mean, there's that expression, right? That like Michelangelo didn't make David. He just chipped away it to the stone to reveal it. And there's this idea of like when, mm. like you're saying, dusting off and being an archaeologist. When I'm in the studio with someone like this is a, I hate when I use like some of the bold face names because I just feel like I'm like one of those assholes who's just like, and when I did this or... No, you've earned it. When I first got together with Lady Gaga to work together on the Joanne album, it could have gone a hundred different ways. She's obviously incredibly versatile. She can make pop records. She can make jazz records. She can do whatever. And she just came into Rick Rubin's studio in Shangri-La in like cowboy boots, cut off jeans and a pink cowboy hat. And I was like... All right, so like we should make this strip back very honest, like almost acoustic y type of Stevie Nicks ish record, because that just seems like that's what you're telling me right now. You know, the first time I met, I'm sitting in the room, actually, my old studio I just got back from 15 years ago, where I first met Amy Winehouse, and she just came in, and I was like, what kind of record do you want to make? Like, I didn't have anything. I'd never made anything that sounded like Back to Black before. She just played me the Shangri La's in the 60s stuff and she was like i kind of like this they play this down at my at my local like her pub and i was like cool like i don't know how to make that either but like come back tomorrow and that's literally what happened and i came up with the piano and like the little skeletal drum beat for back to black and she came in the next day and she's like yeah fucking give me the headphones and went in the back and wrote the song in like an hour so empathetic in both a dj and a right. music producer like as a dj you have to know what people want at any moment and then yeah you're just like feeling the vibe of the people around yeah, you exactly so because i want to get into a couple of those specific stories but the actual transformation from dj to producer how do you go from that like 18 years old you're working steadily as a dj throughout new york and then at some point you officially go into creative so i had always wanted to play music and be in a band and all this kind of stuff and then i realized like i was never going to be like slash so i and i got really into hip-hop so that just sort of took over and then after a year i was like oh i'm getting pretty good at this and people like when i do this and playing in new york in these downtown club scenes and it just sort of took over my life because it was exciting i was making money off of it and whatever and then um Dominic Trenier, who's this fantastic guy who managed D'Angelo and had his own label, he had this artist named Nika Costa, this incredible singer. And uh, he came to my DJ sets where I would play funk and soul, but also ACDC and Shaka Khan and, and hip hop. And he'd be like, I signed this girl. I don't know what her music's supposed to sound like, but it's supposed to feel like one of these fucking DJ sets. Do you make music? And I was like, yeah, sure. Wow. And I was so like underdeveloped and obviously had nowhere near enough know-how to like match this woman's phenomenal musicality and voice. But I just got a chance to learn on the job and just we kind of figured it out. And then that record came out, my first solo record, which sold like 
10 copies, but it happened to have like pseudo hit in England, this record called Ooey with Ghostface and Nate Dogg. And that's how I ended up meeting Amy Winehouse and Lily Allen. And that's sort of when I kind of figured out what I was doing and my career took some momentum. That was Here Comes, Here Comes the, the Fuzz. Here Comes the Fuzz was my first album, yeah. How did on your first album, because you, you also had Jack White and Most Def, like how, how did you have those relationships already? Basically, some of those people I just knew from the New York club scene, Most Def and Sean Paul was just like coming up at that time. And, you know, one of the things of being a DJ, you're kind of onto shit before it really blows up, especially before streaming and stuff. Like a DJ might have a record by the Neptunes or Pharrell or Sean Paul, like six months before it was ever on MTV, you know, the way records. So right. like, that was kind of cool. And so I had those people. And then Jack White, I just went to a concert at Radio City of the White Stripes and the Strokes. And I was just like, this is fucking incredible. And I just wrote him a very nice letter and sent him the song on a reel-to-reel tape because I just figured if I send this guy a hard drive, he's going to literally burn it like he's Mr. Analog. Yeah. <laughs> and he just liked it and sent it back. I have learned through my career that it's amazing what a nice letter can achieve. Like sometimes when you go through managers and all this shit and you're like, oh, they never wrote me back. Well, I wonder why. Like if you just give a human appeal to somebody and Anyway, so yeah, that's how I got, it was a mixture of having relationships with some of these people and then also just Hail Mary, you know, cold calling people. Yeah. I watched that doc, It May Get Loud. Yeah, It Might Get Loud, yeah. I had a, you know, I liked the White Stripes, but I was by no means a Jack White historian. I I didn't realize the depth of that person's genius until watching that. Yeah, he's a a monster, definitely. (laughs) Okay, so... When you start working with Amy, I watched the Amy documentary and it was so beautiful and heartbreaking. And I have a perspective on it, of course, as a recovering addict. And it's just, you know, I know that story very well. I've seen it unfold many times. And I did wonder, like, what was it like to have that relationship with her where, again, you had to turn in a product? You must have, I don't know, you must have been terrified for her, you must have loved her, you must have wanted to fix her, you must have... Well, the crazy thing is, is that she was really together when we met. I didn't know any of the part before when she had been, you know, had her problems with alcohol and stuff. And so we just met, and I remember her coming in the studio, and I even remember a couple of people being like, oh, you're going to work with Amy Winehouse? Like, good luck with that. I heard they've been working on that record for three years. She'd had a first album that was kind of a hit in England and a real a lot of critical acclaim and then that's when she you know started drinking heavily and stuff and kind of went away for a while and I think no one thought anything about her coming back or whatever it was but I mean I thought her voice was cool and I didn't certainly didn't have anyone else ringing my phone off the hook so she came and she was very together at that moment and that's why when she told me that story um about her family coming over and like trying to get her to go to rehab. And I said, no, no, no. She said it like, as we were walking around Soho, I was like, Oh, you know what? I'm usually pretty anti like turning a conversational quirk into a song. I kind of hate that shit, but like (laughs) just the way you said that is so hooky. You want to try and go back and write a song. And if she was still fucked up or like, you know, in a bad way, I have a lot of friends and recovery family members. Like I never would have been like, oh yeah, that's so funny or been flipping. It was seen because it was such a chapter in her life that was closed before that unfortunately seemed really prophetic like in the years to come. But yeah, when we made that record, 
she was just so razor sharp and her wit. And I, I didn't know any of the thing before. So I was like, here's this amazing person who's just like sorted their life out. Well, can I quickly absolve you of any thought? If you have any inclination that that song was somehow a bad idea, I just want to say it is the job of art to tell the real story. It's not the job of art to tell the story of what everyone should be yeah. doing. That song resonated with all kinds of people that are in the middle yeah. of that journey. Uh, yeah, I probably, like most of the time, I probably just heard a catchy fucking hook and was like, let's go. Like, I'm always like a music and beat person first and then like words second. That's why like I didn't get Bob Dylan to like my early 30s. But with Amy, I guess it's just hearing some of those songs more recently, like, and you even see it. This is crazy, but I think you even see it in the streams, like... Nobody really wants to listen. You know, you have recurrent radio and radio that plays old hits and Amy's songs that get played are Valerie, Tears Dry and Back to Black because Rehab is not really a fun song to listen to anymore, sort of knowing how it turned oh. out. And weirdly, the song that we did together, Valerie, which is just a cover and it's the most joyous song she's ever recorded because it's somebody else's words and her vocals so joyous, but it's such an easy one to listen to. That's why... Certainly in England, it's like the wedding DJ go-to because it's just like everybody gets up. You know, I guess it's that's partly because you get to divorce Amy from the tragedy of her story when you listen to that song a bit. You get all of the talent and none of the sadness, I feel like, when you listen to Valerie. Never even thought about that before. Yeah, was, that's an incredible observation. And I was running it through different filters like... We've had this debate about like whether someone could watch the Cosby show. And I said, um, I pretty much can. Like I can divorce the things yeah. in my head. But most certainly if there was an episode about uh date rape, you just you couldn't divorce yourself at that point from the show. You'd be like, Oh my god, this oh right. Yes, right. Anyways, that was a terrible analogy, but I did yeah. think of it, so I yeah. shared it with you. If we're gonna go there, my friend, he's a person who doesn't necessarily want to divorce himself from the or of Woody Allen. This is a very hot button yeah. thing at this moment. Yeah. And he said, you know, I went out to dinner with somebody and they were a filmmaker and it was cool because she said she actually can still uh, watch Woody Allen. Blue Jasmine's her favorite. She just didn't really dig Manhattan. I don't know what to think. I was like, you should fucking schedule date two because if somebody can still watch Woody Allen, yes, Manhattan <laughs> is extremely hard to watch now knowing what we know. Like that is the movie yes. about the mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Like, I guess every time someone brought up Woody Allen, I'm kind of like, well, I can't imagine flushing Annie Hall down the toilet. But then you go through the whole body work and you're like, oh, there was a reoccurring theme here, man. Old ass guys with very young girls. And yeah, those ones, uh, they're, you can't. That's been a tough one for the Jews, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of my African-American friends with like, with Michael Jackson, you know, I could feel it. And I was like mm -hmm. a lot of. Yeah you're not taking him from us. And like, that's how I feel like all my Jewish friends have been with Woody Allen, but that dog was hard to watch. Hollywood has a lot of Jewish people to point to. Yeah, look at me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have an Academy Award. You're the new, uh, you're the new No, Woody don't Allen. say it. Don't say that. Do not say that. <laughs> I don't even know that's what the you're going to say, right there. but I've already <laughs> been canceled somewhere. Terrified. Okay. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert. If you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for Ooh, it. Ooh, that's exciting. 
If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be Rob specific. and I received some texts this Yeah, I was locked morning. out of my therapy setting, which is this attic. <laughs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, Talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. Okay, as the relationship with, first of all, your guys' partnership yielded the most tremendous success, you and Amy. What were your kind of thoughts when that happened? Did you have fear of like, fuck, I don't know if I can replicate this or I don't know if, you know, maybe we had some secret magic sauce. Will I be able to do that with other people? Like After Amy, there was two things. Like I realized that I was working with a singular talent and there was nothing that I was going to be able to do to like recreate that with somebody else. But at the same time, here I am, I've been chipping away for like, 10 years at this point trying to make it in this thing and all of a sudden I do this thing that everybody likes this old sound and you know the dap kings and the horns and the soulful Motown feel so I guess I should just 
do that only from now on. And then you realize that you can like, you run that into the ground and it becomes uninspired. Yeah, you got to wait around for Leon Bridges right. to arrive, if that's going to be your only yeah, <laughs> methodology. So, so, but I do, and I look back at some of that stuff. I did start to phone it in a little, or I did start to like go into the studio. Like if I'd been out late the night before, a little hungover, and like not have an arrangement for the song in my hand, and just be like, ah, the Dap Kings will think of something cool to play, and because they always do that. So, like, <laughs> I really hit another low point in my career for sure i was writing the success of my album my own album version sold like a million copies in england and so i was just like oh i guess people just like whenever i do what i do because there were no expectations on those records you know i wasn't even signed when i made versions so then i kind of fucked up and overreached and then i was at my lowest point and then a series of events and met Bruno Mars and Jeff Basker by working on Bruno's album and then we made Uptown Funk but I really did in the in the seven years between that like hit a lot of fucking humbling stumbling blocks you know at this vantage point are you grateful for those the plateaus the valleys oh Yes, of course. I mean, at that moment, it, it feels like, oh, cruel musical world. Like, why has thou forsaken me? Like, you know, you start to see, you know, I'm friends with a lot of other producers and they're, you know, we all have a healthy level of competition, but like you're all sitting around it like, oh, you, oh, you got the Adele call? Really? Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't get it. And then the, you're on top of the world and other people start to come up that were behind you and taking your spot and there's a certain amount of complacency. I was kind of, I don't know if I could say I never really had a problem, but I, I didn't have a bottom out thing where I needed to maybe ever, or maybe I did need to get clean. I'm not sure. But all I'm saying is like I was partying too much. I was drinking, doing blow, yeah. all yeah. the kind of regular oh, shit. so good, yeah. And delicious. Then, <laughs> it's delicious. I don't even do, I don't like cocaine. I just like how it smells. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that said Jamie Foxx. I stole that from Jamie Foxx. Yeah, of course, all those things because I had to come back and I knew when I was making that Uptown special record, the one with Uptown Funk, I was like, if this isn't the best thing I've ever made and I don't care about this more than anything, I know that this is could be my last shot, so I just need to put it all in there. And, and you know, obviously, like having sparring partners like Bruno and Jeff on it. I couldn't have done that without them, but it was good. And then, I mean, that's because I've only just come to a point in my life where I like feel actually settled through all the usual channels of intense therapy and introspection. Like I'm so grateful for like everything in life. Like I'm with this person now who's like the greatest partner I've ever had who I know I couldn't have been with if I hadn't have gone through all this shit to get here. So like now I literally look back and I'm like, thank you to that fucking relationship, that thing that I lost, whatever, in the divorce, whatever you want to talk about. Like if all those things are what got me here, then I want to like run around and kiss them all twice on the cheek. So there you go. I'm just now launching a theory and I'm going to apply it to Monica and myself as well. Because you lived in fantasy so much and you, you had a, this total fairy tale version of what it would be to be someone who made the Amy Winehouse record, did you feel like, I, I certainly felt this way, like, okay, now I'm ready for the fantasy and I'm just not there. So uh, drinking helps me feel that way. Coke helps me feel like you got to start kind of augmenting it to get it to where you thought it was going to be. And then in doing that, yeah, you, you become complacent and a little lazy and stuff. It's that. It's a lot of things. I mean, especially for musicians, and I guess this is probably more for you for performing comedy live than maybe being in a 
in a film, but we'd have the best shows. Like when I was, I, and I guess like, because it's kind of true. Like I'm really only famous, like tr truly famous, like in one country, England. So sometimes <laughs> when I'm talking to like people here, like on a podcast and I tell them like, we sold out two nights at the Hammersmith Odeon. People are like, what, what did you, what do you do now? But no, we would have these crazy shows. We'd play Glastonbury, 60,000 people come watch. And I would come off stage and be like, that was terrible. And I, it happened so much and it was so not congruous with reality and what I could see looking into the crowd or what people would tell me coming off the stage. I came up with my own sort of armchair theory that I think the adrenaline and all the anticipation, all that excitement and nerves before you go on stage, when you come off, that is completely depleted and you are like, at, there's absolutely nothing there. So even as a brain chemistry physiology thing, because that would literally be a, a crash or a, a mini depression, it would be quite easy to think that that means, oh, that show was terrible. When really they're two totally different things. And then you can't get the feeling about the show being good until you've quickly had two beers and you're like you're on your third line in the toilet in the dressing room and suddenly you're like oh and then that's kind of brought you back up yes uh that at least that's what it kind of was for me i think oh and then you have to learn how to do it so it's so common i remember coming off tour and i was doing a record with somebody and we had just played the night before to like eight thousand people and he's just in the booth and i'm like this isn't fun you singing without people yelling like what is this why are we doing like this is fucking boring i didn't know this again until reading about you today but you dated rashida for a while who's a good friend of ours yeah and she's still a really good friend and she she actually like hooked me up with my current therapist i hope she doesn't mind me like blowing up the spot like that but who's actually been a been a good life guru for that. I hate when people get on and proselytize and they're like, and then I found there. And then when people talk about this therapist, I mean, they're all there as a sort of similar thing, aren't they? To like be a mirror and the good ones will also give you some good guru life pointing. But I, I guess I'm just afraid to just say like, yes, I had a therapist that Rashid introduced me to who's really great and who's been a big part of me sorting out my life. Yeah. Let's break that down. Is the fear that people will think you're cliche? I think it's a bit of cliche. I think I've been on the other end of like snickering at hearing somebody <laughs> yeah. else say that in an interview. I think that was maybe 10 years ago, but before people like you and Russell would go on and talk about that shit for a long time and intelligent people that you respect would talk like that and maybe just the slightly more emotionally in tune thing that we're living in. But yeah, I think that's the cliche. Because I hear, when I say something, as almost simultaneous to me saying it, I hear my 19-year-old friends responding to it. Like, that's my hurdle, right? If I say something, I just hear them going like, oh, this motherfucker needs so much attention and sympathy, or this guy needs... Yeah, yeah I don't know what it is, but then again, like, then I seen friends going through the same shit and like tearing themselves up. And then I can occasionally go like, Hey, I did this thing that was pretty good. Or I went to this place and you can pass that on and then like sort of help someone make their own shit better. So why not talk about it? I guess in a way. Yeah. So anyways, when I was thinking about Rashida in yeah, dating please. her, I had the experience of going to her birthday party at her dad's house, Quincy Jones's house which was so fun. A, it was just the most fun. Probably if you dated her, you probably attended one of these. It was a serial birthday party, pajama dance party. It was the pajama jam. The pajama yes, jam. Yes, yes. Yeah. One of the funnest parties I've ever been to in my life. But I wandered into the room with all the gold records, and I got to say, I was just like, 
oh my god like i got goosebumps in there you're just not gonna walk into a room like that no anywhere I mean, we uh, were really close and we dated for three and a half years. We're actually engaged for a short time. And then she's still one of my you know, favorite people in the world and her partner, Ezra. I have such a clear memory of going into that room at Quincy's place for the first time of like 23 years old. And there is basically a giant trophy cabinet on the wall that's just like 37 Grammys, you know? And there was like part of the thing that you just know that you'll never get that so you don't have to feel competitive with it. But it's also like when you start to get like, uh, you know, I have seven Grammys, maybe I'm like my fifth one. You know, I think I have this teenage fantasy of Quincy's cabinet that at some point I've always dreamed. And now I realize like I would never do it and I don't have enough and like any partner that I'd be with would just be like are you fucking crazy you want to like take up wall space it could be like good art to, like, be a testament to some fucking shitty records you produce that's just left such an impression the Quincy Jones trophy cabinet and it's such an LA kind of Bel Air yeah. artifact too. It's well, amazing. yeah, music wasn't even in my profession in any way, but my dad loved Quincy Jones. I loved Quincy Jones. I recognize all the Michael Jackson stuff that Quincy did, all my favorite stuff of Michael Jackson. As someone that's not even into, that wasn't my career path. I was just looking at, because there's also numbers of like units sold, which by the way, whenever yeah. those were printed, they're not, they're more than whatever it says. And yes, I'm like looking yes. around like a calculator going like 50 million, 78 million, 112 million, three. And I'm like, yeah. the magnitude of success here is really no, almost it's incomprehensible. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, he produced Thriller, the greatest selling record of all time. And then just throwing off the wall bad and all the scores and the stuff that he did. And yeah, he's a genius. He was, uh, did you see the documentary that Rashida yes. made? Did you guys see that Netflix doc? Like. I mean, his story is like part Forrest Gump, part yeah. like Superman, part like <laughs> civil rights hero. It's crazy. I mean, nobody, his life intersects with so many amazing like uh, things. And then he's made incredible music that we all love. Yeah. Uh, yeah I just, I, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, you must have been so excited. Because I was like, I couldn't, uh, yeah, I had chills in that room. You have two sisters, right? And no brothers? No, I actually have. 10 there's 10 of us all together so my mom and dad so well no i have two full sisters you're right charlotte and samantha for my mom and dad and then my parents remarried and you know had a lot more kids and then i have two stepbrothers so there's 10 of us all together and like we don't call anybody half or step we sort of all grew up together and you know like what happens when you grow up in sometimes like turbulent fraught homes the siblings band mm. together because you're like become your own kind of like security blanket so like we're all fiercely and i love my parents very much i'm very close with my mom dad stepdad stepmom but that we're especially the siblings like we just have each other's back like kind of nothing you know this sometimes boggles monica because i have this um irrational level of protection over my sister in fact when people will say like Oh, you have different dads, you're half siblings. I have an urge to hit them. Like it's that oh. strong. I'm like, no, yeah. no, my, this is I've never my, said that, by the no, way. No, no, Monica's <laughs> never said putting that. Putting that but, out there. But I'm like, this is my sister. I would die yeah. and kill for her. No, she's not a she's not 0.5% my sister. Yeah. <laughs> like I have a stepbrother, my stepdad's oldest son, 
and then my half-brother from my dad's remarriage to his second wife, who were friends. Like, they have literally, <laughs> there's not even a word or a term that can link them. <laughs> They're not related. There. There's no law. There's no in by marriage. And they, like, hang out and raise hell. So, yeah. <laughs> I just think there's something very specific to boys who grow up around girls. We We have, like, this pod group and... There's one boy in all these girls. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. seeing him develop. And I'm like, oh, he has this sensitivity that I, th- who knows, you know, I'm sh- there's biology, there's all these things. But I think a lot of it has to do with this culture we've, we've provided him. Forced him into. All these girls and that he has to adjust to their temperaments. But I always think those people are way better off for it. Yeah, I definitely got into this question because the last record I did was all female vocalists and because most of my like more well-known work with Amy or Gaga is like you know very strong powerful female artists performers like I did get this question a lot where I had to start thinking about it like why do you think you do your best work with females or is it something to do and I, I did grow up in a how you know my stepdad was a musician very loving but on tour and out of the house a lot late nights in the studio so it really was my mom my two sisters and I do think that I'm sure there's something about that dynamic that made me feel comfortable around extremely powerful dynamic women maybe in a way that like I'm always so surprised when I like speak to like a female artist and and this is going to sound so douchey, but they'd be like, you don't understand, like most producers are not like you, like you come into the room and it's basically like all your ideas are like bullshit and you're there to be made to feel like a six-year-old child. And I'm just like, that boggles my mind, not because I'm so fucking great or enlightened, but like if you have a powerhouse mega talent, why do you not keep asking them, what do you think we should do now? What is not the advantage of accessing that thing? And I guess, you know, that's just not the well, case all the ego. time. Uh, Well, ego, and then let's be somewhat sympathetic. They probably grew up in a household where dad shot down every idea mom had, and it was dad's idea to keep silly mom on track and don't go spend this money. Like, if that's what was modeled for you. Yeah, that's true. And we hear about it more often now. Like, it is an archetype in the industry, but you're right. I do think it's like, it's your modeling. Yeah, I don't don't think I like, yeah, I don't deserve a pat on the back. I just grew up, you know... That's what I think. I'm always like, if I'm having a conversation with Lady Gaga or something about that, I'm like, I'm literally doing ground zero bottom (laughs) floor of like what you should be doing as a producer. Like, that's why I'm amazed that like, that I'm getting any kind of like, hey, that's great you do. I'm like, that's like literally like just to walk in the door what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm just not doing something. I'm not being an arrogant asshole. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's like most of what's got me where I am is what I haven't done as opposed to... And I had a really like interesting conversation with Rashida about this one time. She's she's like, I think there's this point where you like you're coming up and you do, you want to be De Niro, you want to be Stevie Wonder, you want to be the best that ever did it, and then you sort of get past that and you realize that the reason that you are where you are and that you do good work and people want to work with you is because you're kind of not those things and you're just you do the work, you're talented, you you get it done and bring something to it, but also you're just not an asshole and you're like easy to be around. And those things that you like don't really want to get credit for saying that that's why you are why you are because it's not like the things that are exciting to talk about. But at some point I realized that is why there's so many producers that have come along at one point and had like more fire, more momentum than I did or like did some incredible shit or had like a a row of like eight hits in a row for like 18 months and ruled the radio. And then they just kind of go away and then I'm just 
still here. And I think that like reasonableness or whatever that word is, is like part of the reason I'm just hanging in the game. Well, I look, that's the same for actors in show business, which is like, everyone's going to have a certain amount of ups to bat. And if you're a dickhead the whole time, that time where they're going to give you a second chance will not exist for those people. Okay. I want to talk really quick. As we said, I'm friends with Bradley. He says, I'm going to do yeah. Star is Born. I'm like, this is, what, this is insane. Talk about aiming for the fences. Like, you don't sing, you know, uh, yeah. this is, it'll be the third or fourth time this movie's been made. This is yeah. so ambitious. And then the very first thing I heard him sing was, tell me something good. You know, like, I'm like, what, yeah. what, what? Like, if he flew a helicopter by my house, it would have been less yeah. shocking. And he was just fucking awesome. But there is something about the song that is, I don't want to diminish anything from him because he's so spectacular on every level, directing it, acting in it, singing. It's a good setup to do that. I don't know how else to say it. Of course. I mean, listen, I didn't even know that song was going to be a duet until he showed me early on the first cut of the film and when they're sitting in the parking lot and then it goes to the thing. I thought it was just going to be a Gaga tune. Like that's all we knew when we were writing it. Also, I would been brought in to work on Joanne, the album. And like, she was starting to talk to Bradley about making, she's like, I might do this film, Star is Born. Is it cool if he comes by the studio tomorrow? I'm a fucking movie, like, obsessive. Like, that is my second great joy. Like, and I love all kinds of movies. So I love, like, Limitless and Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah. And I like Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> I, I had to dig deep <laughs> silver linings playbook like he has a magic thing and he has a a lack of vanity that also makes guys just like him and is so relatable which is very hard for like a very handsome film yeah star. so he walks in and he's just like all like golden like glowing <laughs> in the room and i'm like that's cool and he's he sits down and we play him a couple of songs that and I'm kind of like, not starstruck, but like there's a thing when I'm around people that make something that I really love and they have a little bit of a magic power. Well, really quick, can I just say that is your livelihood. You actually are attuned at recognizing when someone has some X factor. Right. Yes, that's well yeah. put. I'm going to start saying that for now. Okay. <laughs> so he's just sitting there. And we planned some stuff that we've been working on for that, right? And he was, like, really into it, the song Joanne. And he was like, can I have that for the movie? And I was like, <laughs> who knows if this movie's ever going to get made? I've been brought in to finish this Joanne record. I have, like, the heads of Interscope Records. Like, they've given me the fucking keys to the golden artist, or rather she has. But, like, those are the deadlines I'm thinking about. Not like, oh, she wants to make this movie with Bradley Cooper that might never get made. But I loved her. I could tell she really wanted wanted to do it it was important and he had a very good vibe and i was like all right well fuck it you want to take a week out to write some songs for stars born like let's do it why not so she came in and we are just fucking around with ideas like most songs start like spaghetti at the wall and and then my friend andrew who was there played the, the first guitar chords i was sitting on the like the electric piano and she said like that tell me something girl and when we record with her she likes to put headphones on. It's not like everyone's sitting around the piano jamming. She puts the headphones on and everyone has headphones and she has a mic in front of her because it makes sense. She can sing this soft and you would hear it just as well. And she knows that all the things she can do with her voice elicit so much emotion. She can turn on a dime to make mm. it powerful or quiet and broken. And when she sung that, tell me something, boy, or tell me something, girl, I don't even know which verse came first. I was like, 
oh, like all oh, the hairs stood yeah. up on my body and it was like getting a fucking musical hug. I just, that broke me right from there. So that's how the song was written. But there was a verse, tell me something, girl. And then, of course, because I'm a producer, I'm like, well, second verse should be tell me something, boy, because like, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. But it was Bradley who heard it and turned it into a fucking duet. So when I saw that shit... For the first time, he showed me like a rough cut of the, like an assembly of the first hour of the movie. Oh. And they start to speak the lines first in the parking lot. First of all, I, the movie was just incredible up to that point. And I'm like, oh my God, he's taking our words and, he's, and it's dialogue and it's so moving. And I love this song 30 times more than even when we wrote it, just how it's being presented in this film. And then when they sang that oh, shit and they together, walk out I was on like, stage. oh my God. I was like, this is a song that I didn't even know was going to make the movie because she wrote 30 songs. We wrote our song really early on and then she went off and worked with all these great country writers. And then fucking... Here I am watching this film. I, mean, I literally like couldn't wait to like leave his house that night to call my friends Andrew and Anthony who co-wrote the song with us and be like, guys, you could fucking buy a house. No, not literally. I was like, you guys are not going to believe what he's done to our song. You're going to be so mm. moved. Mm. This is beautiful. And I watched a couple movies recently about bands and being in a band i don't have to name any names but it's, you know some of these award season songs and i just made me appreciate how well he made playing in a band so visceral live it's the hardest thing to get right it's the easiest thing to watch as a musician go that's so corny that would never happen yeah. and even if you don't know how it happens you can feel it those scenes on stage and stars born like he just got that shit so fucking right that's one of the best things about that film to me. Yeah, my complaint about a lot of those music movies is that they're videos. They look like music videos. They don't at all. There's nothing, to your point, visceral about it. And there you're like, yeah. oh, that's what it feels like to walk out on stage at Coachella. I don't have to yeah. do that now. I just experienced it. Fucking blowing up somebody's spot here, but I don't even know if I heard from him, but I was like, I think Bono or somebody was like, don't even try like it's the most impossible thing to get right like you'll never get it like these are the, everyone tries to make these movies about what it's like the musical experience and like he just proved to everybody that he could and there's a couple bits of magic in it if i can theorize one is yeah that first line is like i would compare it to the guitar lick in can you hear me knocking like it, it just starts and you're like right. oh I love this song in the first five yeah. seconds. It's impossible. That's Lucas Nelson has to get the credit for that because we had the chords, mm. just A minor, F sharp, G. And he came up with this very iconic figure that went from, instead of going... Oh, we're getting lucky. Oh, I'm excited. We're getting oh so lucky. We tricked him into doing this. So we had this. So he went... And that's just like, what the fuck? Like, he made this shit from, like, a really nice thing into, like, those classic Hotel California Stairway. Like, those classic figures, as soon as you hear it, you just know it. So, Lucas Nelson's guitar arrangement of that is really deserves a lot of credit. I just got uh, goosies. Me too. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That I was so some, exciting. I got some goosies. And then the third thing I'll just say is, like, talk about the pressure. That movie lives and dies on that song. I mean, truly, mm. it's a great movie, but you also need the hit song that justifies why they go on this ride. If they had given us a C-plus song and said that launched the rest of the movie into high gear, you'd be like, eh, I don't know if it did. 
I'm going to like say something controversial and a bit, I would let anybody who co-wrote it tell me I'm a fucking idiot, but I think it's a B-plus song that the movie turns into mm. an A, like because of the emotional, oh, wow. visceral experience. Or maybe not B-plus. I don't want to put a number on it. And Gaga, if she heard this, she'd just be like, fuck you. But I also noticed that a lot of the songs that have won Best Picture at the Oscar, you watch them write it in the film. So Hard Out Here for a Pimp from um, mm -hmm. Hustle and Flow, mm. the song in Once, a lot of those songs, when you're watching two people on the screen or four people that you really love crafting something, you're already mm -hmm. invested in the song because you feel like you were there at its moment of creation if it's a good song. So like that's always great in a movie when the song is actually being written in the movie by the people in it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good point. When I saw the trailer, actually, even as gassed as I was watching the first hour of the film and seeing how he'd used it, and that was the first time I knew it was a duet, when I saw that trailer, I mean, it's one of the greatest oh trailers of God. all time. Oh, yeah. And the way they use Shallow and her oh. big note, that's when I was like, wow, like, they've made us, like, the cart or the horse or whatever the <laughs> fucking yeah, expression yeah. is that's, that's, that's pulling... Yeah, like this song, they've put all the apples in our basket, and I know that that film is why people love that song as much, and probably vice versa. Well, and let's just give all due propers that look back when Bradley's about to get on the tour yeah, bus. Oh, oh my God. I had pussy quivers galore. <laughs> I was like, I don't care yeah. who he's smiling at, they're fucked. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> there are so many... So many memes from the look, <laughs> her look back, and the note. It was like, there were like 400 memes. Like, I think I saw the memes before I even knew they had re released the trailer. And I was like, oh, man, this is good. <laughs> hey, that's his, um, you want to talk about his X Factor, just to blow more smoke up his ass. But that's also Hangover. Like, it came out, it was a hit. And I asked all these women, what brought you to that movie? It's such a boy's movie. And unanimously, they were all like, Bradley coming down the escalator in that oh, suit. Oh, my God. Right. And I'm like, damn, that's power. Yeah, it's power. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day, and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy, and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all-new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow-roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. We are supported by Vital Farms. And guess what, Monica? I'm back. You're back in the egg game. I am in the egg game horde. Mm -hmm. I love eggs. I love Vital Farms. I, I buy Vital Farms before, during, and after they've sponsored us. Yes, they're truly the best tasting eggs. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit 
gluten-free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. They're so fresh. Mm. Those yolks are so orange. Yeah, they really are. You feel like you're getting quality product. Absolutely. Trusted brand. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. We are supported by Men's Warehouse. When you wear a tailored Men's Warehouse outfit, it makes you feel confident, like you can do anything. Whether it's a snappy suit that makes you want to dance at a wedding like no one is watching, or a smart casual outfit that gives you the confidence to nail a job interview. Yep, you should give Men's Warehouse a shot, and here's why. Men's Warehouse is the only nationwide men's clothing store that has a tailor in every store to fit your suit, shirt, jeans, etc. to your bod. Men's Warehouse features clothes from the best brands in the fashion world like Vera Wang, Kenneth Cole, and Calvin Klein. Men's Warehouse isn't just suits. They have jeans, t-shirts, shoes, hats, and even underwear. The tailoring is game-changing. It really makes a huge difference in people's outfits if it's tailored to your body. You could have a billion dollar suit and if it doesn't fit it looks terrible yeah agreed yeah it's key men's warehouse is everywhere with 600 plus locations nationwide so if you need one and you will there's one near you feel like you can do anything in an outfit from men's warehouse visit your men's warehouse store or click or tap to shop online okay so it makes total sense that you would have a podcast about music because you're really like an encyclopedia of obsession on music. So I have two things, this, this podcast, and then uh, and I'm not trying to make like a half-ass segue into promoting something else, but I have this Apple show coming. This It's a documentary series about, about making music. And oh. it's, it's coming at the end of July, and it's uh, it was really fucking exciting to make. Basically, I did a TED Talk on sampling that you know resonated in certain fields it's sort of slightly nerdy academic but explained sampling in a way that made people who i guess didn't really know i think that they gave a shit about hip-hop and oh cool this, this is a contribution to culture and like a lot of ted talks you try and give it some kind of like relatable daily life shit about human fucking emotion so the guy kim rosenfeld who was running up apple their nonfiction thing said i'd love to make a tv show with you that's about music and he put me with morgan neville this incredible director who made won't you be my neighbor and 20 feet from stardom and all this stuff and we just we dreamed up this show how do we make this thing about lifting the veil of how music is made and how music works in six episodes and we came up with let's make each one about a different technology or device that's changed the game for modern pop music as we know it so we did auto-tune reverb distortion synthesizer samplers and drum machines and so that's been the past year and a half like going around talking to some of my favorite fucking people from Paul McCartney to Tame Impala to Too Short to the Beasties to Wale to DJ Premier about how they do this shit and sitting in the studio and understanding when they first used that shit why it suddenly gave them a superpower they didn't think that they had. And so I, I realized that the podcast is a, a little bit of an, a, an offshoot of it in a way. So the podcast is The Fader magazine, like one of the great music magazines. Hold on, can I pause you? Because I want to know the name of that sure. documentary because we're going to be all up in oh, there. Yeah. Monica and I live yes. for documentaries. Yes. 
Okay, it's called Watch the Sound, and it comes out all six episodes on July 30th on Apple. July 30th. I'm excited. Sincerely can't wait to see that. Yeah, and so The Fader is this amazing music magazine that's, like, so cool because it's always, like, M.I.A. or Travis Scott. or It always gets these people right on the cusp of when they're about to blow up. And they always have a really good, like, batting average of like who really becomes important you know early drake whatever so they said we want to do this interview show where we talk to everybody who's been on the cover of the fader at one point or another and using that article as a parameter so you're not just talking about everything they've ever done but like where they were at that moment in the career usually it was just before they blew up and then kind of you know using that as a jump off point so i know some of the people more than others tame impala and Erica Badu or maybe people that I've worked with and then there's people like David Byrne and Damon Albarn who I just am a fan of and I'm up all night doing research and like you on Wikipedia and (laughs) just like not wanting to come unprepared and so it's really fun. I listened to the David Byrne one and it was it's awesome. Thanks. What I really like about it is you have such respect you've gotten your own accolades that it is really like a peer-to-peer conversation like the I don't know. I I was excited for you how seriously David was treating you as a, as a fellow person in music. Yeah, I was too. And I don't expect that going into it. I do come in, like I spoke to this amazing young rapper, Rico Nasty, and like her world is so different. And she had like no idea I really made music. Like I was saying occasional like stories because they were relating to what she was saying but i i wonder if she was like why is this journalist keep like talking about his band or some shit like because i've been on the other end of that and it's like okay i get it like i know we all make music but then at the very end rico nasty's like you know what like you're a really good interviewer. I was, cause I think I said, this is only my third one. And I was a little like nervous, but thank you. And she's like, yeah, like I didn't need to like go out and smoke weed or anything. Like I was totally engaged. And, uh, and she's like, and you said you make music too, right? I should check it out. Sometime. Oh my like, God. What have you done? Oh my God. I and I love was like, this. well, I guess the thing that I'm most known for is Amy Winehouse. <laughs> um, and she just kind of freezes up. But what was even more sweet was it wasn't like, oh my God, that's like da-da-da. She was like, wow, that's crazy. She's like, my mom used to play that all the time in the house when I was five because that came out when she was five. So the the reaction wasn't like, oh my God, you Amy Winehouse, that's my shit. It was like, wow. You made rumors, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Does it hurt your ego a little bit, though, if like she does, you don't care? I love it. I think it would have hurt my ego at like some point, but I think I just realized like it doesn't matter if she knows my stuff or not. Like it's just, it's totally a, a world and a lane that exists where she would have come up and never come across anything. Or and also like I'm a producer. There might be some songs she knows, but like she doesn't have to know my name. But and, and I kind of love it. I think we can relate to you so much because like you you have enough success that of course you should be interviewing those people and yet you're behind the scenes enough that certainly someone could not know that and then i've just had a very middling acting career so we we interview people one of my these are my favorite like pete carroll coach of the seahawks climbing the steps of the attic having no fucking he looked at me dead in the face and i could be an uber driver he doesn't know he doesn't know why he's here i don't imagine he's excited to be here and then mid-interview, something magic happens and it clicks. It's, it's so, so rewarding. Strange. It's so strange. Yeah, I love I that. I prefer it's, it. It's, it's, a, it's sort of like cute. B, it's like 
you know, we're all comfortable enough with our success and like where it is now at this point that it's like, cool. Maybe it's a good meter for how confident you are or something. Because even now people will text me and they'll be like, I saw you. Oh, my gosh. Congrats on the progressive commercial. And I'm like, the progressive commercial (laughs) is what you're noting, like, which is obviously my own issue. But. It's just so, I'm like, wait, no, let me tell you about what I'm really doing. It's just so. When the side hustle becomes the main hustle. <laughs> I remember when I was like starting off and DJing and like the first record I came out wasn't like a huge success, Nika Costa. So I was kind of like back just being known as a club DJ. And I was DJing a Grammy party for Kanye West. It was like after his second album. What was that? Like late registration. And he has yeah. this big party. And he's he's like basically standing on the booth while I'm DJing. And he's like, yo, anytime you see me or Mark Ronson on the wheels at one of my parties, like, you know, we're having the best time because this is my favorite DJ right there. And like a tiny bit of me just went like, because like I wanted to be known yeah. as like a producer. That's what I all I wanted to be known yeah. as. Like here's this guy who's one of the great producers this time who still only thinks of me as a DJ. And even though he's giving me the biggest compliment he could possibly say at that moment in a front of a room of 2,000 people, like this is the guy I have to play the music when I'm celebrating. And like all I heard was just the like, I'm not a yes. producer, you know? So like, yeah. it's, I can find the brown lining in any compliment, <laughs> I like to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Brown linings flavor. <laughs> that's a, that's my autobiography. I've seen Erica Badu live probably five or six times. I love her. What is she? <laughs> is she an alien? Is she from another planet? How did we get her? What's going on? <laughs> you know, if you if you actually Wikipedia Erica Badu, which which I did, because we've worked together, we made some songs together. She does feel like she's floating in a slightly different like atmosphere than all of us that actually she is the first to use the expression woke in popular culture really it's crazy yeah so so woke was always something that you would hear a lot of like the nation of islam and the muslim um it was like in the literature and the i guess the ones like of town here in new york it would say like you know stay woke like don't yeah. you know don't oh, get yeah. caught in the system it basically means like call in the system always stay alert people are out for your shit and also um never feel afraid to challenge the status quo it's kind of all those things wrapped in it you can imagine what it means it's not that hard stay woke so she was the first person actually to put it in a song and i think that's like 15 years ago and what song cancel everybody no i don't know (laughs) (laughs) even though i'm sure the phrase takes you know the way it's currently uses in a way that maybe higher ideology at that that point was it's just yeah she just seems otherworldly and like intelligently and spiritually connected on a slightly different plane and i was really nervous interviewing her for some of those reasons because i was like i don't want to trouble her with these mere mortal questions (laughs) a little bit you know like (laughs) it can be harder with friends in my experience because you know stuff about them that you know is super interesting, but you you can't tell if that's something they wanted to just tell you or the world. Like it's a yeah. dicey dance with yeah. the friends. That's definitely that. I have interviewed people that like to keep shit close to the chest and I'm like kind of like dancing around it. And I've just only fucking done, other than the Apple show, which was different because there's a film set and we're cutting it off and you know we're in the studio and we're playing with toys and gadgets. These interviews, you know, and I've done nine as opposed to how many of you guys done? Like 400 now? It's fucking hard and I'm still learning how to do it and it's 
sometimes you can't see somebody's eyes through the zoom or like it's a yeah. little far off or like it's fucking echoing you're like miss words when you're being interviewed you're allowed to say could you repeat the question but like you uh, yeah, can't yeah. say can you repeat the answer when you're the interviewer like so i really just i've underprepared when i think that i know them and it's going to be a little easier because i have more of a working relationship and that's backfired a little bit too sometimes so yeah now i just like i just go fucking djnetworth.com and i just get all the details <laughs> i get all the deets boy were so many similarities we're discovering 1975 just to get things rolling and then interviewing people and friends I have a single last question, but I do want to remind people to listen to The Fader Uncovered, your podcast, and then watch The Sound July 30th on Apple+. Plus. Are you hip to Mark Ribolay? Oh, wait, that is really familiar. Okay, I, I asked because Badu obviously got hip to him, and she did something with him, which blew my mind and made me happy for him. He's a dude I found on Instagram. He does samples and repeats, and he sings. He has this beautiful voice. And he plays piano beautifully, and almost every song devolves into butthole. Something about a butthole. Oh, okay. He's incredible. He's okay. incredible. I really want you to explore Does every song him. really devolve into a butthole? Oh, oh, nearly everyone, but okay. in the most beautiful way that you're like, this song is heartbreakingly gorgeous, and he, he's talking about buttholes. And his shows are improvised. Like, he'll have people shout things out, and then he'll make songs out of that no that's very brilliant it's kind of like what john bryan used to do at tonic yeah. largo without the butthole yes <laughs> yes yes oh so that's so great you've seen that as well yeah he was a real hero of mine like for sure i got i went to that a couple times yeah so for people who if in ever in life they get a chance so john bryan who's scored um, most of the paul thomas anderson movies most of the movies you like you realize it's because he scored them. Internal Sunshine. He, he's just the most beautiful composer. And he produced the second Fiona Apple record, yes. which is one of my favorite ever. He co-produced all of Kanye's second record. Oh, wow. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. So at the beginning of this show, he will compose an original score in front of you using this. What do you call it when you take a section of it and then it repeats? A loop? He just has these loop pedals where he can loop himself on the fly so he can build the song before our eyes on stage. And it's incredible. They're like huge film scores by the time. And then there's a little intermission. And then when you come back, he'll ask for suggestions. Uh, any song, um, the Charlie Brown Peanuts theme song, great. Any other song, uh, Uptown Funk, okay. And he, this motherfucker will sit down and play both of those songs at the same time in one song. Even as I'm saying yeah. this, I feel like that can't be true that I saw that, but... He, he does that. Yeah, he has like a different musical brain, like two brains. <laughs> well, Mark, awesome meeting you. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah. I wish you tons of luck on the Fader Uncovered podcast and watch the sound. I can't wait to bump into you in real life. Yeah, that'll be fun. Maybe we'll have a shared 50th birthday party. <laughs> It'll be uh, four years from now. But are we going to have it like in the middle of our birthdays, which would be like four and a half months, like sometime in the middle of April or something? Uh, late spring birthday would be ideal. Okay. Climate wise and okay. greenery. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you there. Okay. Bye. <laughs> All right. Bye. Be good. Thanks so much. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. So I've sat in something wet. Oh. 
That is the worst. It is a horrible feeling when your pants are wet. It's like you piddled your trousers. That's what it feels like, right? And then I think about babies. This is how they are. No wonder they cry all the time. They live in piddle. Yeah. Yeah. They're always, always, always piddling themselves. Speaking of babies and diapers, um, our friend Molly and Eric, their dog has a diaper on. Yeah, because. She's become a woman. Yeah. Yeah. She's having her first period. I don't understand. She is a baby. She's a seven-month-old puppy. She's clearly a puppy. And somehow Mother Nature said she's ready to have a kid. I know. Could she get pregnant this week? Yeah. No, she could. She's a puppy. How is a puppy going to have puppies? Well. She'd be like 14 months older than her fucking children. Thing is, you got to look at their life, right? Like they don't live as long as us. So they kind of have to start procreating earlier. Well, let's do the math. So the thing's going to live 12 years, right? Well, if you're, I mean, I guess, I guess I don't know. That seems, oh, let's look up average lifespan of a dog. I think we could safely say the thing will live 12 years, uh, barring some road accident or something, you know. 10 to 13 years is the average lifespan of a dog. Okay, so what I'm going to do, Monica, is I'm going to type in 12, and then I'm going to divide it by point, let's see. So if it's seven months, well, first I got to fucking divide... Ay, ay, ay. I got to divide seven by 12 to figure out what percentage of a year that is. Uh, divide seven by 12 equals, all right, so 0. 0.58, 0. 0.58. So I'm going to now go 12 years divided by 0. 0.58. And I'm going to say. It's a lot of math. I'm confused by the answer I got. I got, tw- I got 20. I don't know what, what was I trying to do? You were trying to find out in human life. Yeah. What time would you have to start procreating to match the dog's life? I think that's what you were trying to do. So I guess it's 20% of its life is what it's telling me. Okay. Okay. So if you live 100, 20% of your life is 20 years old. You yeah. can have a baby. Yeah. And that's I about, guess it all works out, but it doesn't feel right. And, and a lot, you know, tell me something. In a long time, <laughs> let me tell you something. Okay. A long time ago, Women had babies at like 15. That's right. That's when, so, a, that's when a woman should have a child, no, 15. I mean, I got my period when I was 12. Oh. It says most girls get their first period when they're between 10 and 15. That's a big, big window. Average age is 12. All right. Good for you. You were right on the average, right in the bell curve. I really was. I want to correct something. It was corrected within the episode, but it got cut out. I am so embarrassed by this. What? When we interviewed Leon Bridges, yeah. I said what I associate with Dallas-Fort Worth music is the Ghetto Boys. And he he later corrected me, and it was humiliating. They're from Houston. They're from they're not from Dallas. So if you heard that and you heard me oh. talking about the Ghetto Boys being from Dallas, they're from Houston. I got confused with the wards. I thought they had wards down there in Fort Worth, but oh. they don't. They're from the Fifth Ward okay. of Houston. But I had it wrong, and it just... I'm sure there's a lot of Get Up Boy fans that were like, what, this guy, Upset? this guy's a fucking... I don't remember him correcting you. I don't remember cutting that out. Yeah. Because normally then I would have just cut out you saying it all together. The first part? But yeah. it kind of set up the Dallas sound. Like, you couldn't have gotten it out because I just, I would have just yeah. said Dallas sound. But I said that, you know, or maybe that would work. I don't know. People probably don't pay too much attention to what I'm saying. They're just trying to listen to what the guest has to say anyways, maybe. You know, Leon DM'd me. No, he didn't. Yeah, and he just he said did? that was such a fun hang. Much love to all of you or much love or something. Wait, he didn't DM me. Well, Let me see if he did. Well, I think now that he might like you. 
of course you think that. I do. Everyone likes you. Oh, my God. Yeah, no fucking DM from him. Okay, well, maybe. Oh, my God. Maybe he thought I was very approachable, and I am. <laughs> well, I think he might have. What did you respond with? Can he I said know? That, he said, that was a dope hang. Much love. I put so much fun. Please let us know next time you're back in town. More hanging to be had. Heart, heart, heart. That's pretty inviting. Good. And yeah, so he hasn't I want responded. him to hang out with us. I know. What if he's trying to date you? I know you you want everyone in the whole world to want to date me, but they don't. And I I, I think most <laughs> everyone wants. Rob, you're a, another member of this group. Do you think everyone wants to date Monica? It's a good amount of people that are single. Certainly okay, a lot was... higher than 38% that would date me on our thing that we have hanging on the wall. 72% of people would not date me. And I'm saying that the amount of single men who would not date you is around 9%. That was, I really liked Rob's answer. Okay. Because it was uh, very professional. Oh, okay. And I'm. What's that word I'm looking for? Measured? Uh, it's it's sort of like measured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it was appropriate. It was appropriate. Oh, okay. Good job, Rob. Good, really good What job. percentage of single men do you think don't want to date her? What percentage? Oh, no. I mean, I'm sure that's low. I mean, yeah. Very low. Nine, ten percent. You're putting him in a horrible position. Uh -huh. you, yeah, that's kind of why I'm here. Do you think I'm here to like not create conflict? To make conflict? everyone comfortable? Story is conflict. We're telling stories. Okay. But anyways, I put it at nine percent. Are, okay. are we including like children that are single? No, no, they, no these eligible, are people who want to date. Eligible okay. people. Yeah, because here's the, you're in the sweet spot which is you are not too old for a, uh, all, every 19-year-old boy wants to date you. In fact, we've gotten proof of that because they keep think, approaching you. I do that are think young. that's actually the, the category that... Highest category. Yes. And then you're old enough, like you're 33. So even a 60-year-old man's like, he can have a conversation with you. Well, I hope. Yeah, you're not talking about like what college you're getting into. And he's like, oh yeah, well, good luck with that. I'm not reminding him that we're much, much different yes. in age. That's true. So you're in this really golden era right. of your life where it's, I think almost every age group probably wants to date you. Wow. Of the 9% that doesn't want to date you, 4% of them are gay. Oh. oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think that's- 2% are blind. Oh, boy. Okay. 1% can't hear. Okay. And the other 80% stupid. So. All right. Pretty much 100% <laughs> of people you'd want to date are available to you. Anyways, he DM'd. I'm just telling you this because I, I felt so good that he. Enjoyed the experience. Yes. Me too. Yeah, because yes. he was nervous, as he said. Yeah. And you would hope he walked away like and then liked how it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like his first pick to talk for two hours. No, and I and that's one thing I wanted to clarify because in the episode, we start in our intro with like, oh, he was so shy and, uh -huh. and we want to nurture him. And then you listen to the episode and he doesn't sound shy at all. He just sounds super cool, which he is. Yes. And then I was like, oh, it sounds weird. It sounds like we've like decided he's like anxious oh. to be around us. But he told us he was. Yes, and he just has a sweetness that if you're in person, when you're observing the whole package, there's a sweetness that makes you want to protect him. He was so lovely. Do we agree that people try to intrigue one another by DMing them? That's pretty much like in our culture. That's yes, how I you, think that is culturally how you get things rolling. Something that happens hasn't happened to me. Okay. Well, I don't check my DMs unless <laughs> uh, it's Leon. Unless <laughs> unless you follow them. So, with that said. You know, he didn't DM me. 
and he DM'd Seems you. Seems like you're really uh, stuck on that point. Yeah. And so, well, no, it's fine. But but it does it does open up the door to me that like, oh, hmm, cool. Maybe he thought DMing you was like too much. No. Yeah. He's cooler than I am. Well, I know, but he might not know he that. He might not know that. Here's the thing. Because I don't want you to move to Fort Worth. Yeah. Well, it's, it wouldn't. It doesn't sound like he's going to be happy living in LA. I agree. And I just bought a house. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And it's going to be even more beautiful when you're done. In six in years. In 16 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so the Fort Worth of it all scares me. I w- I'm not going there. I'm s- I can't. I have t- I Could have you guys plans. compromise on Austin? I'll DM him and ask. All right, at DM and say, will you, can we live together in Austin? <laughs> what if that was your next DM? And what if he wrote back, fuck yes, thank you for asking. Oh my God, you get so, your fantasy. Oh, your fantasy life is worse well, than mine. But you know, you're you're the only character in my life that I can have all these fantasies I about. I know, you're but, living vicariously. Yes, I always, you, well, you know, you go out to drinks on weeknights. I do. At these fun LA restaurants. <laughs> and I'm always like giddy. Yeah. I'm always like, oh my God, have so much fun and- talk to people and yeah i get really excited that you're out there having fun and yeah. you're young and you're in los angeles california soon to be austin <laughs> and i also get excited about just things i'm not a part of maybe too mm. because like remember yesterday you and um, molly and Kristen were like you were having your girl time that's right about some interior decorating stuff yes and like i could want to get like i could want to be a part of that but i, I can't I can't like I won't I would be faking my emotions that you guys are just naturally having. Right. You wish you felt the way we felt. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't want to be fraudulently like, oh my God, yeah, it's circular. <laughs> All the ones you see are square and this is like Yeah. I just got a PQ and you said that. You did a yeah. circular. Uh-huh. Well, I I told you my theory on sexual attraction. It's just circles. Oh. Men just like circles. It's so simple. Well, I just meant- It doesn't make any sense. I just meant I got a PQ when you were talking about interior, interior decorating. Interior design, yeah. yeah. Back to circles. Okay. So what guys like about a butt, it, if you break it down, it's just two circles. And then the breast, there's two circles. Yeah, but you don't even like circles. It, no, I love round features. You do not like circles. You don't like circular oh, tables. Oh, oh, You don't like- In s- interior design. Right, and, and in life. That's right. I want it to be the domain of the woman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's where circles should live. Well, cars- No, you'd oh. think that you'd really like a circular table because it would kind of remind you- Of a- uh, Boobs or a, breasts. Of breasts. <laughs> well- I like wheels on cars. That's where I that's where I uh, exhibit all of my creative flair is on the wheel selection of a car, and they're circular, and I love it. Mixed messages. It's just really funny that the complexity of a human being, and yet really they're just bonkers for circles. It's not just circles. It's it's what they represent. Sex. It's you're, not that they're circles. Like you're you like, dirty. Yeah, every time we try to have like an elevated conversation about circles, <laughs> your mind goes straight to the gutter. <laughs> I don't like roundabouts all that much, interestingly. I think I want to be done talking about circles okay. now. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm, we're getting I'm a little mad at you. I want to oh, air a grievance okay. unrelated to the circles. <laughs> okay. So when you wear a cute outfit, yeah. I make a whole to-do oh, about shit. it. Like, was, like the whole the whole intro will be about your shoes or your shirt or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well. So, here we are. <laughs> well, now you've asked for it, so now I it's know, uncomfortable. I know. I know. And you forced me to Listen, ask you. I was going to get there because okay. I actually was going to start with that. Okay. As you do, because I did note, oh, Dax always talks about my cute outfit. So I got to talk about his cute outfit. Mm. 
But then I sat in something wet. True. And that became the highest priority for me. As it should be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're in a very cute outfit. I have my first jumpsuit. Yeah. It's, I guess we'd call it a, a boiler. Oh, suit. I think you're right. I think on the website, I had to figure out it was called a boiler. Yes. And it's short sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a real black. Anderson Pack jumper or bo- boiler. It's really nice. I like it because it's floods too. I guess oh, they're supposed yeah. to be, probably. Yeah, I like to roll up my and jumpsuits. I, I get to put on a loud sock, which I, I like, as you know. Should we do jumps? We're going to have a live show, you guys. That's um, right. Yeah, we're going to go back out on the road in September. Yeah. Do you think we should wear matching jumpsuits? Yes. Oh, fuck. This is great. Do you think people object, though, that they're not um, overalls? That seems to be the uniform we're supposed to wear. We can evolve. Okay, great. Let's not get pigeonholed. This is a ding, ding, ding okay. about cute boys. Oh, great. Mark Ronson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Ronson is a very cute boy. You thought he was so cute. Yeah, I thought he was first so cute when I saw him on the Lady Gaga documentary. Oh, that's where it started. That's where I first saw him. I was like, who is this person? Wow, I love this one. This I find this out. Then I did a deep dive. Then I found out it was him. Oh, my God. You love your deep dives. <laughs> and I wanted to talk a little bit because at the very beginning, we talk a little bit astrological. Oh, okay. And I wanted to look up your horoscope. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Because I know I know you don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. And neither do I really. Mm-hmm. But then it's one of those things where you read it and then maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a good way. Sure. Yeah, I don't believe it has any merit, which is not to say I don't enjoy reading a paragraph that's supposed to be about me. Okay. I think that's why people love horoscopes because it's about them, they think. Yeah. My issue, can I just say my issue with it? Yeah. 12 t- types of people, that's what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. It's so limited. Also, you know people that have your same sign and you're like, I am nothing like that person. So how, somehow, I don't know how this paragraph's telling both of us what's going to happen to us. Right. I agree with you. There's so much variation. But then when you start, you know, we've done all these interviews, you start realizing actually most people are pretty much the same. That's true too. So. Yeah, that's the flip side of that coin. That's right. Everyone's the same person and everyone's so different. Now you're a J2C. Thank you. That's Capricorn. Yeah. Okay. This is the month of July, 2021. No, no, not July. Oh. Yeah, now. Oh, this I got is you. This your I monthly you. I, I was going to say, I'm born, I was born in January. This is the Capricorn monthly horoscope for July 2021. Running out of time. Okay, go ahead. It's called Clean Slate. <sighs> oh, okay. Right. Capricorn, the focus this month is on relationships. This is not the time to go. Uh-oh. This is not the time to go solo, but to work as part of a team or a couple because you'll be able to accomplish more that way. Okay. Freaky. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's oh so, my it's God. So, it's also, also this. It's so Bader-Meinhof. Though. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Your love life may also be in the spotlight. You could feel moved to spend more quality time with your partner or hold discussions that can resolve any difficulties you're going through. Good communication is key. But you went on a family vacation. I did. I did. An 18-day trip. Wow. I know, but here's the thing. It's Bader-Meinhof. So, like, you hear the thing, and then you search your whole month, and then you find the thing that that relates to. So, it's a little Bader-Meinhof. It is. But, but, but wow. This is, uh, there's one yeah. more. I got one oh more paragraph. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. With the new moon in Cancer on July 9th, there is an opportunity to take certain relationships to a new level. Oh, wow. If you're considering a business partnership, this is an excellent time to set one up because things can go from strength to strength. You might also want to commit further to a romance that's showing signs of promise. 
Oh my god! I guess There's it's so true. much romance. I know. I know. Like you just throw all that off yeah, the table. You're right. You ignore like more than half of it's wrong because yep. I'm not single. Okay, hold on. Now I'm gonna do me. Yeah, do you? Let's see. Virgo monthly horoscope self discovery. Oh. Virgo, your social life looks promising as this month gets underway. With the sun in your sector of friendship and groups until July 22nd. Mm, that passed. And with convivial Mercury moving into this zone on the 11th, the chance to connect and enjoy outings and events can certainly boost your mood. Are you ready to branch out and move in new circles? There's a delightful new moon in Cancer on July 9th, making this a great opportunity to set your intention to make new friends and connect with kindred spirits. And if you have a long-held dream that you're eager to start on, now is the time. Okay, well, I missed that. Um... Mine isn't as fun. Yeah, I'm not getting any Bader Meinhof from yours. Anywho. All right, so mine isn't as good. I wish we could find August because we need to know what's coming up, not what happened. Right, that's true because we got to make big moves and plans, <laughs> like invest in things and Do you want your um, yearly? Sure. Or, do, or your daily? Oh, fuck. Yeah, hit me with today. Okay. This is Am I going to find love again today? You might. <laughs> wow. Wait, what the hell? Maybe I have to pay. Oh, they probably want you to pay. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to pay. Okay, don't um, pay. All right, well, that was... Again, so if we're just looking at something, like, so only half of mine was right, which was uh, outstanding. The half that was right was really fun. Yeah. But half was wrong. Right. And then your entire thing was wrong. So we're looking <laughs> at something that was 25% right. There is nothing in the world we would say is a good barometer if it's 25% right. It's not even 50% right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I guess, but the things that said about you that yeah, were right were eerie. really right. Yeah, it was eerie. It was eerie. Yeah. All right, well... That was a kind of fun little detour. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so he mentions DJ AM. Yeah. And is he passed? Yeah, he OD'd. He was a DJ. He okay. was probably the first like rock star DJ where he would make, I don't know, 100 grand a night to play at a nightclub. Got it. And he had a, I think he had a residency in Vegas. But he, boy, I think I can tell this because there's a documentary about him because I, it blurs into like I had a personal friendship with him. But yeah, you said you knew him. In yeah. In a nutshell, he was sober for a very long time and he was really sober. He was like a great, great member of the program and, and sponsored a lot of guys. He oh, was wow. a very inspirational person. He and Travis from Blink 182 were on a private airplane and it took off and it crashed. <gasps> And there was a huge fire. Oh, my God. Um, Travis's, like, assistant best friend died. died. Oh, my God. And both of them were burnt pretty badly. Oh. And he developed this very understandable fear of flying. Sure. And his job is to fly places all over the country and play. Yeah. And so... He was prescribed Xanax so that he could fly. And he I know he really wrestled with whether or not mm. to take it. And I think he took it as prescribed for a while. And then I think he got into a little slippery area of how many did he take on these flights. And then I think he felt kind of unsober. Mm. And then it led down a path where he ended up doing all the things he had once done and and it's heartbreaking he was he was supposed to go to treatment you know the following day oh my god that is so yeah so he kind sad. of knew uh, my understanding is that he he 
he knew treatment was on the horizon and he kind of had a one last thing and then, yeah and he died and he was the sweetest guy mm. he was wonderful Oh no! Yeah, and, and and insanely talented. Like yeah. I, I remember, I just knew he was a DJ. I don't, I don't care about DJs. I don't follow them. I think I stupidly was like, "What these people play other people's music? How are they an artist?" And then I saw his his sets. I yeah. saw a few of them, and they're another thing. Yeah, like, oh, they're, totally. It's insane. I, I really became a like a believer of that. Yeah. After witnessing what he could do, man, that's tragic. It's so sad because. What a crazy set of circumstances. Exactly. You know. He had no control over. Certainly over a plane crash. Yeah. And then, you know. Yeah. It's. It's, it's such a It points out slope. how tenuous the whole thing is. I know. Yeah. <sighs> Your life is so much this balance of like either maintaining status quo or getting incrementally better. And then also it can just get incrementally worse. Yeah. And then it can be self-perpetuating. And like you can just get on the wrong track for a minute. And then it can leak. It's like rabbit hole with the dude. Like yeah. there's all these, it's it's you really it's scary. have to be intentional about monitoring yourself yes. at all times. Yes. You really you don't get a vacation from like most people can go like on a vacation and be like, yeah, I'm going to drink today at 10 a.m. That's not a decision that's going to impact them. Like, they can yeah. just for two days be on a vacation and drink all day and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess with this thing, you don't you don't ever have, like, a freedom of, I'm going to do what I want to do. Right. You don't ever get to do what you want to do. And that's a weird admission. Yeah. and But I also think it does apply to an average person, too, because you can, like, you know, go on vacation and have a drink or whatever. I mean, we don't even have to make this about substance. No, Anything. it can be you can get fired. Yeah. And then you can get in some fight with your roommate and then you can blank and then you can blank and then you pick a bad partner because your self-esteem yeah. is low. And then all of a sudden you just literally can, yeah. Yes. That part is scary. It is. But I do think if you are trying to be self-aware, mm -hmm. it can help. At least if you make the point like i have to think about where i am yeah how how am i doing really yeah. and ask people around you i think like making sure that you're taking in let, cues let, from other people way, like it from from hindsight this seems like it could have potentially been a fix which is he made enough money mm -hmm. to hire a person who travels with him and gives him the one xanax and holds his annex yeah but i can see if i'm him like Really, man? I got to have a human being I that I pay to fucking hold it. Like, it feels so defeatist to think that that's what you would have to do. But but probably that was the solution that would have yeah. been the best. Is like, I know myself. I shouldn't probably have the thing, but I need to take it to fly. I should maybe. I don't know. Well, and if he had been sober for a long time, that, that it's it can get so dangerous. It can. There's, I think, two elements of like just that feeling like you're not sober is really dangerous because then you feel like you don't have much to lose. Like I've already kind of lost that special feeling of being dead sober. Yeah. And then, two, you're reminded what being high feels like. Yeah. And as you get further away from it, it gets easier to resist that because you don't really remember what it feels like. But well, and and if you're sober for so long, you feel that you have you have a handle on it. That yeah, like, like you've oh, earned you some kind out. of yeah, yeah. I know that's the great trick of that. The the saying in AA is you got sober 10 years ago, your addiction didn't go away. It's doing push-ups. Mm -hmm. It's waiting. It's getting stronger. It can't wait for you to go back. Like it doesn't get weaker. It gets stronger, which is seems not possible, but 
proves to be possible almost every time. Yeah, yeah. man. Well, that's a very sad story. Mm. Okay, so he said a Quincy Jones quote. The Quincy Jones quote is, apparently this phrase came from a dialogue between Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. Jones apparently said to Jackson, if a song needs strings, it will tell you, get out of the way and leave room so that God can walk in. Mm. He later rephrases to, you've got to leave space for God to walk through the room. Mm. Cool. I like that. Me too. And you you joke that you use an exclusive site to do my do research. Your research. That's right. Yeah, it's very. It costs me um, one hundred fifty thousand a year to be a member of this because yes, it's like the most cutting edge research. Very exclusive. Very limited edition. Pew Research. <sighs> I'm involved with them. It's Wikipedia. And I'm involved um, with uh, the Rand Corporation. Sure, sure. All the think tanks. I'm getting most of my info from. Right, yeah. and also Wikipedia. Rarely, like if I don't have internet, because I got to have a T1 hookup for all these other things. I got to have like, I got to be at my computer center because the information comes in so fast and stuff. Well, Wikipedia. I mean, look. Listen, this is the fact check. I got to say it. (laughs) I got to say it. I just got to say it. Okay. Now that's all the facts I have procured because uh, pulling back the curtain, Uh I am only halfway done editing this episode. Yeah, that's okay. And I apologize. You shouldn't. Well, I should because I haven't finished. I haven't finished. I got to choose my words carefully here. Okay. The facts are super important. They're great. I love them. I want you to always do the facts. (laughs) And I don't think it's the most important part of the fact check. I would agree, but it is my commitment to the people. Yeah. And I respect that you respect that. And I want you to keep doing it. But I also think that People probably get what they came for, even if there's... Because sometimes there's no facts. Sometimes we'll, well talk sometimes, for 25 yes. minutes. But in this case, there might be. There might be some facts that I haven't heard yet. And I just yeah. want people... Like that the ghetto boys are in from Houston. Right. Yeah. Well, that was a fact I didn't say. And I guess I cut out. So that's extra bad. It's I don't fine. remember it. It didn't mean anything to you. And probably... I don't know how many fans of the podcast are also fans of... Ghetto Boys. I don't know what the bin diagram overlap of that is, sure. but I'm guessing it's razor sharp. <laughs> like the same margin of people who don't want to date you. Like it's oh. like it's on the pie graph, but you can't even you can't figure out what color it is because it's just the lines are so close together. Okay. You don't even know what color they put in there. Wow. Does that make sense? I wonder if all the people who don't want to date me also love, love ghetto the boys. Ghetto boys, yeah. That'd be interesting. No, not a chance. Okay. Ghetto Boys listeners fucking love you. Okay, great. Yeah. Because of my um, all my circles. I Can I just say, so much spark talking to him. Oh my God, such a fun interview. It was really great. Interview. He's so interesting, I think. What a very, very, very specific life that I don't know much about. Like the DJ world and the music producing world is, mm-hmm. is so specific. I really liked the way... He kind of equated it to almost like you're a therapist. You have to like feel the energy of the person. Very empathic. Yeah. And also, not that he is this, but perfect job for a codependent. You're basically like you're making someone else's problem yours. Mm. Like it's the artist's problem to create an album and you're kind of making it yours with them. True. But I think it's also like you have to have a lot of skill in... Because you're working with all these incredible artists with incredible uh, talent, but you yourself have a talent. 
and you're providing that, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't look like you're taking over. In the background, in a weird exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all we got. And you look so cute. Your outfit's oh, so cute. I just want to end you. on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really like it. I like it too. I think it's going to be your new look. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. It's great because you don't have to pick out a shirt and slacks. You just pick out so this easy. one thing. Have you tried to pee? Yeah. And did you like that? It was great. Okay. Yeah. That's the one part that gets a little hard. For a girl. Yeah. Yes. You got to basically get naked in yes. a public restroom to go potty. It's not fun. Let me build a little flapping back. That'd be like nice. the jammies, like well, the cowboy jammies. Well, that's if you're pooping. No, because you would lift it up and back and then you'd sit down your bare butt would be on the toilet and your yawn could pass through that hole. Right? You wouldn't do it in front. You don't pee frontwards, do you? To my well, knowledge. Do you stand when you pee? No. Oh, my God. This would be the best breaking news of all time. <laughs> this little known fact we didn't know about you is that you pee standing up. I wish. I mean, I and have. You don't ride the, I have in the shower. Of course. But, and you don't ride the bull backwards, right? What's that mean? You don't face the tank of water. You face no, out. No. Right. But the thing I'm proposing, if you did reverse cowgirl, the toilet okay. wouldn't work. The flapping back. Oh, I see. But as long as you're riding it as prescribed, okay. then the flapping back would work beautifully. All right. I guess you can make me one and I'll try. I'm going to give me an extra, whatever pair you don't like. Let me work <laughs> Let me work with it a little bit. Okay. And I just want, do want to tease. We have a great episode coming out on Monday and everyone should be excited. Who's coming out on Monday? Oh, boy. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> All right. I love you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love you. <laughs>